One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Joining us today is a true lady of racing. In 2002, she was only the second female in 140 years to be elected to the committee of the Victorian Racing Club and 15 years later took her place in the history books when she became the club's first female chair. Racing is in her blood. Her family has an extensive history in thoroughbred racing and breeding, and her father was also vice-chairman of the VRC. One of only two girls from her school year to go to university, she's written speeches for Gough Whitlam, gone through a highly public divorce, is a passionate racehorse owner and proud supporter of not one, but two AFL clubs. And she wouldn't change a thing. Amanda Elliott, welcome to Short Black. Thank you, Sandra. It's really nice to be here. As you know, for the month of October, we're showcasing incredible women in racing, and you are at the forefront. Spring Carnival's almost upon us. What an exciting time. Yeah, um, I think everyone's heart beats a little faster in Melbourne at this time of the year. Indeed, probably all around Australia. Cup Week is a really, really special racing event for everybody, not just the VRC or the members, but everyone in Australia, and now it's a global event, so everyone will be tuned in around the world as well. The workload ramps up for you, doesn't it? The workload is extraordinary, but I think women are pretty good at workloads. You know, we all multitask and we all take it on, and if you're born with a sort of the DNA of can-do, you just do it. And I have tremendous support. VRC is wonderful, tremendous support, so it's easy. What's a typical day during race week? Oh, well, I do try and get out for my walk early in the morning um, because I find that walking when there's no clamour, there's no cars, there's no people is the time I do my best thinking. So what changes during Cup Week is that walk starts at around 4.30 in the morning (laughs) rather than 6.30 in the morning. So I go for my walk and then assemble my thoughts and then the, the day rolls out. I usually have pages of commitments, which I find a complete joy. I, I mean, it's a privilege to be not just involved, but actually to be heading up such an important thing as Cup Week. You have an executive role, but also a personal passion for racing, don't you? Yeah, I really do. You know, racing is the most wonderful sport because at the centre of racing sits the most glorious animal of all. I love most animals, but horses hold a very special place in my heart. I grew up with them. They're the most dignified of beasts. They're beautiful. I always love that quote of Winston Churchill, which goes, there is something about the outside of a horse that is so good for the inside of a man. Sometimes when it comes to the sport of racing, it gets lost in the imagery of wagering. Does that sadden you or frustrate you? Yeah, no, it saddens me and it's a very, very good observation of yours because 
racing is about so much more than gambling. We all understand that people love to bet. I'm actually a non-punter, which people find surprising. Because you must get so many great tips. Well, <laughs> yes and no. But, they're always but, great when they're given, aren't that's they? That's right. That's right. You can never find that person afterwards. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's so much more than wagering. It is about the touch points that racing has are broader than any other sport you could possibly think of. It's a sport, it's competition, it's fashion, it's social connectivity, it's food, it's wine, it's coming together on beautiful, expansive grounds. I mean, it is an extraordinary sport and it connects people across so many demographics. It is the greatest connector of, I think, of any sport. It's a leveller. You know, there are, no, there are people who own, there are people who train, there are people who ride. There are people who enjoy, there are people who work, and everybody, once they're on a race course, is as equal as anybody else. Ten had the rights for about 24 years, and I had the great privilege of co-hosting for about seven of those, and it introduced me to the world of racing and horses, the equine world, and I fell in love with it, because I got to see firsthand the sport of racing, and the thrill and courage of those jockeys when they're on horseback with half a tonne of flesh pounding those hooves down the straight. It's intoxicating, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I, don't, I think, again, that, that the message about these beautiful athletes, whether they be the human jockey or the equine horse, has not really been well sold. You know, racing has kind of evolved from a social connector. Like when I speak about Melbourne, racing was established or first happened in Melbourne five years after people landed there. So it The country w- racetrack is where it was born. Yes. And, and Hyde Park in Sydney. Yes. And these were really important reasons for people to get together. So it's kind of evolved into something Australians have embraced since they've been here. And it's been known for all those different reasons. And I think that, you know, that's a great thing. As you say, the country racecourses, that is something that is usually voluntary. I mean, all those committees that run those country racecourses, they all have working bees out there and come together because they understand that it's not only a great way for the community to come together, but they can raise money, they can, you know, celebrate their area, they can get people from outside coming in. They can just have fun. And, you know, for the naysayers, it is never at the expense of the horse. And, you know, we face some really big challenges with some of these groups that have a very narrow agenda. And we need to all come together in a way where they understand how beautifully these animals are looked after. I think at the end of the day, there's got to be some acceptance around the fact that the sport of thoroughbred horse racing is here to stay. You can either help to make it better or you can just spend your life being against it and creating unnecessary angst for the people who make a living. And find a lot of joy. And find a lot of joy. I mean, it's the third largest employer of people in the country. So you have to take those things into account. It's ever been thus. The Melbourne Cup in particular has become an integral part of the fabric of our culture. So much so that when I read about the history of the race, even during the two world wars, 
we never missed a race, we never missed a beat. Isn't it wonderful? The Prime Minister of the day in both those wars deemed it mandatory that the Melbourne Cup continued to keep up morale, not just for the people of Australia but for the troops abroad as well. So for every Cup since, wherever our troops are stationed, the broadcast and indeed the telecast of the Cup goes on. Every year we send all memorabilia, bunting, pins, sweep sheets and all that sort of thing to our forces abroad so that they can enjoy the day that unites their nation like no other and they can feel part of it. You're relatively fresh from the back of the world tour with the cup. How was it received? Fantastic. Fantastic. I was amazed. We've only um, started the European part of the tour. The Lexus Melbourne Cup tour just last year was the first year we'd gone to Ireland, England. This year we went to uh, York in England. And I was just amazed at how recognisable this trophy that's sitting beside us here on the table actually is. They're very knowledgeable racing people who understand the great global racing events and Melbourne and Cup Week and the VRC are very lucky to have one of them you know we're custodians of something that is so much bigger than racing it really is even globally. Now the Melbourne Cup Carnival actually spreads across five days and there's a sequence of events that is entrenched in tradition. Derby Day which is you know for fashion lovers is a direction day it's young it's vibrant largely black and white is the traditional colour. Cup days, the zany, the colourful, the mad, the wacky. Oaks Day has become the most beautiful day, I think, where women are in their finest and most elegant and the men flock like birds to a a feather. And then Stakes Day is Family Day. You've really crafted a carnival that offers something for everyone. Yes, and I think that's evolved. I mean, we're almost up to 160 years of doing this and um, successive VRC boards and committees have made good decisions. And Cup Week has evolved into, as you say, something for everyone. And Oaks Day has been tweaked a bit this year again. We've How so? Moved, what we've done is move the day later so that people can have an uninterrupted, gorgeous lunch without racing going on. And then racing start around 2 o'clock, end a bit later around 6.30. It's still broad daylight and move into some musical entertainment. What prompted that? I think, well, nothing was wrong. I think it's just more about evolution, more about wanting to respond to some of the things that people say around wanting more of that at the beautiful race course that we have. We've got these brand new facilities, this uh, club stand that, you know, we are so proud of and the rest of the world are busy trying to build now that they've seen it. And I think it's about utilising our facilities and these days that we have differently. And it's not really changing it, but it's just capturing a different feel to Oaks Day, which I think will be just beautiful. You know, as you say, it's an elegant pretty feminine type day and also in from a practical point of view people can do their half day if they need to and still not miss any of the action during the afternoon and the evening. One of the really special moments I always had at the Spring Carnival was witnessing the timing of the bloom when the race course I know it's a tense (laughs) time in the lead up to that week 
There's a lot of pressure, isn't there? A lot of pressure. I mean, we have the largest rose garden in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, almost 20,000 rose bushes. And uh, the roses are a very big part of the non-racing, but the beautiful grounds of Flemington. This year is just as challenging as any other year, not because unlike last year where the roses were a bit too far advanced leading into Cup Week, but this year they're a little bit behind because we've had a longer winter. But, you know, our head gardener and keeper of the roses, Terry Freeman, has got some magic potions, (laughs) which I think, you know, he brings out from somewhere and gives these roses so that they look as magnificent as they do. How often would you check in with Terry about the status of the rose bloom? Quite often. I mean, you know, we get... It's uh, pretty important. Oh, no, it is. Because everything about Flemington, the location, needs to be as good as it can possibly be whether it be the racing, whether it be the attendance, whether it be the entertainment, whatever it might be, the grounds and gardens are what people's arrival experience is all about. You know, we've got this beautiful new stairway down from the train because more and more people are coming by train. So we want them to arrive at the station and before them a vista of our grounds, our newsstand will open up before them like never before. So that's something new as well. If you're comfortable, can you rank for me in importance these things? Racing, celebrity, fashion, wine, crowds. For me personally or for our organisation? Both. Well, racing is at the core of what we do at the VRC. It is our core business, but, well... You can't have any one thing without all the others. You can't. As I said to you earlier, what we do at Flemington and the VRC is bigger than racing, but racing is an essential part of it. It is our raison d'etre. So if you apply the logic of you cannot do anything unless you have a raison d'etre, then you'd have to have racing first. But then all those things like entertainment, members, the location, the asset itself, the Melbourne Cup, all of those things are an incredibly important part of what we do. You'd probably have to say the Melbourne Cup, in racing terms, is the jewel in the crown of racing at Flemington. For someone who's at the pointy end of the business of racing, but also personally committed to the sport and the event, How does it make you feel when people say, I went to the Melbourne Cup but I didn't see a race? People come to the races for all sorts of different reasons. And that's when I said earlier, you know, we are a broad church. We provide an entertainment platform as well as a racing platform. Racing is entertainment. Not everybody understands the sport of racing or indeed even wants to. That's fine. If they want to come to Flemington to meet new people or to have a good time, that's fine too. I mean, we've got 35,000 members. We are the largest member-based racing club in the world. Not all of those 35,000 members have joined up to be there for the racing. They've joined up for the event. And for the rest of the year. All through the year, there are these beautiful days at Flemington, all themed differently, which doesn't have, you know, the critical mass of people or whatever, but it has a quintessentially lovely experience attached to it where you can go and have a beautiful lunch with your friends, you can go to the roof garden, enjoy cocktails, you can do whatever you like. Have a flutter. Maybe win, do whatever, but increasingly the world is becoming a more isolating place. People, I think, in their lives feel more isolated. So to be able to provide 
a place where people can not only feel safe, but where women can dress up and men dress up in a beautiful location which makes them feel special. I mean, our crowds just keep increasing on every race day since Cup Week. Interestingly, since our new stand opened, our attendances are up between 20 and 30%. And that's not just because people want to party. Some people just come and want to spend time in the bakery. We've got a bakery. So they go and they have their poached eggs or whatever it might be with their kids. Go and look at some horses and maybe home by lunchtime. So Flemington has become a different place. It's a wonderful place for people to actually get some space. People increasingly live in box apartments, you know, but we've got this beautiful sort of 300 acres of space. Where people can connect over fun or racing or fashion. All of that, which I think is a beautiful thing. And And I feel that responsibility to never direct people into one thing or another, but to make sure that it's they understand how accessible we are and that we are part of Melbourne and they should be proud of it. Let's look at your journey and when you talk about isolation, we're featuring a number of other women this month and Katie Page, Gay Waterhouse, yourself all talk about and acknowledge that it was a very blokey game when you first started but it never seemed to stop any of you. Yeah, look, I think, um, yes, it is a pretty blokey sort of game. It's had that perception for many, many years. I mean, it's only since 1982 that the VRC has allowed female members. That doesn't feel that long ago. But, you know, I don't think gender, and and I would be interested to hear what Katie and Gay said, I, I never really ever thought gender was any kind of deterrent. Sometimes it's actually more of a motivator because you actually need to prove something. You actually do have to go that extra distance, particularly if you're in a position where you're making decisions and they've formally been made by a lot of men. I'm not saying that men or women make better decisions, but the fact that you're the first woman to do anything sort of means that you do have to make those decisions with absolute commitment and conviction. I'm not sure I've ever made a decision without that, to be honest. You were the second female committee member ever appointed in 2002, the first female vice chairman in twenty in 2011, and the first female chair in the club's 153-year history. Did you feel the weight of responsibility being that first woman? Absolutely. I felt the weight of the responsibility, but it was a responsibility I just wanted to wrap my arms around. It was a responsibility that I couldn't wait to get to. What did you think you could bring to the table that was different than all your predecessors? A different perspective. Being the first woman, of course you're going to have a different perspective. And an urgency. I sort of felt an urgency to have this bigger picture about what the VRC could do for the future of Melbourne. I'm a sort of unashamedly optimistic sort of person. I've always been a glass half full person. And I had had a pretty good apprenticeship at the VRC and had always understood what a remarkable asset for Melbourne it was. And I love Melbourne. I love Australia. And I think that Australia, in a global sense, is regarded by so many as something that needs to be looked at. Because when you think about our relatively small population and you think about our amazing achievements, whether they be medical or scientific or indeed sporting, 
Australia is this wonderful country that does punch above its weight in a global sense. And I felt that this incredible asset that Melbourne had, that I now led, the responsibility of getting it right was huge, but the responsibility to take it forward in a different way was just as big as the responsibility to get it right. And none of us get all our decisions right, absolutely not. And you're always going to get some wrong. But if you ever, if that ever stops you making a decision, then you're not the right person because you've got to be prepared to you know, not get it right all the time. I've always been a top-down person. You know, let's just look at the biggest blue sky we can possibly imagine and come back from there. And, of course, a lot of this happened at a time when your marriage to the well-known Australian John Elliott was coming to an end. And there were a lot of women who thought you were always a strong, independent force of nature, but you came into your own as Amanda Elliott. That's a very sweet thing to say. Um, It was probably the most vulnerable time of my life. It was a particularly painful sort of time because it was all played out in the press. And even though I had dealt with the press for 16 years with John, and he was the master at it, I was a very different character to that because he was the sort of main event and it was his thing. But I think, you know, my solo journey, as it were, that chapter of my life, started with an awful lot of doubts about would I be able to do this, which for a person who'd been endlessly optimistic all her life was confronting in itself. So I think, you know, to be perfectly honest, like most women who, or or men whose marriages break up and they feel quite fragile and uh, vulnerable at that time, you spend the required amount of time in what I call the broom cupboard trying to figure out how with two young daughters with a very sort of people publicly aware of who you are or watching to see what the next move is, you spend a bit of time navel-gazing. And then you kind of grow up and you think to yourself, I can do this. I actually can do this. So you open the door of that broom cupboard and you step out, not quite sure what this is going to be, but you have a go because you're determined I didn't like being in the broom cupboard. It was a situation I hadn't been in ever, and um, I didn't want to do that again. You needed to regroup. Need to regroup. So you regroup personally, and um, then I got a little sort of tap on the shoulder, and in some ways racing rescued me. The tap on the shoulder was uh, from the VRC asking if I'd be interested, and before I knew it, there I was. So your personal life then is very important. And as I say, you've got these two children who are adjusting as well, but you've got something outside yourself to focus on, which is so important for everybody. Because as you know, we've all been through stages where we, you know, I think the worst position in the world is almost thinking that you're the only thing that matters in the world, because I think you make pretty stupid, not stupid, but unnecessary decisions when that's the case. That chapter with John, though, would have taught you the highs and lows of the media. Do you think you learnt a lot? I learnt so much. I learnt so much. It was, a, it was an incredible 16 years, and I wouldn't change it for anything. Like any of the chapters of my life, um, I've been so lucky to have them, but the ride with him was the one that taught me more than anything, probably. 
He was, you know, at the top of his game and it was an extraordinary life that had its sort of challenging side as well in so many ways, always fighting for time together, always fighting for family time, always sort of trying to get a moment where you can think about what really matters other than what the public see and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it taught me a lot. It really did. What do you think about the media? Oh, I think the media is an essential part of everyone's day. I've never, ever had a dark view of the media or journalists. I used to give them soup and coffee and all sorts of things outside our house. <laughs> they were permanently parked out on our nature stripper when I was married to John. Except think... for the time that he sold the house from underneath you. Oh, God, I yes. remember that. Gosh, that, it must have been difficult. That was terrible. but And it was actually true. It was just terrible. You know, getting up to walk the dogs in the morning and seeing the posse outside the house was no different to any normal day or, you know, two or three times a week they would always be there. But what made this morning different was because I didn't know what it was about. Normally, you know, something has happened the day before or you've got a bit of a heads up. I had no idea. So when I asked as I was leaving the gates with a bright smile on my face, what's going on? What has he done this time? <laughs> they alerted me to the situation, which I just didn't believe, actually. I thought this is just another rumour and went for my walk, came back with a disturbing sort of nasty feeling in the pit of my stomach and um, discovered it was actually true. So, yeah, I don't really want to go back there again. No, no, no. But what it did teach you, and I, I see it in your every day, in your presence, is the resilience to keep going. Yeah, took a while to get over that one. It was, you know, firstly it was our home, but the other thing was it was the, the lack of trust. So I think that was the shock. What's your life like now? Are you happy? Very happy. I have a busy, busy life which I love, and I know busy is a word everyone uses, but it's not busy for busy's sake. You know, I feel empowered by the stuff I do. And in a selfish sense, that's like lifeblood. You know, that's, I feel that I'm making a difference. And I think for a person who's motivated by that kind of challenge and by wanting to make the world better for having walked through it, that's almost essential. What do you think that chapter taught your daughters about their mum? Well, God. You must have had that chat. We do. It's funny, you know, we don't spend too long thinking about it because I think for them it was a pretty confusing time as well because even though they were protected as much as they could be from the glare of the publicity and the questions and, and, and the stories and the rumours and everything else, of course they were part of it. They were our family. And I think what it taught them, and I'm hoping, and, and well, this is what we chat about, is that it taught them that to rise above that noise, to try and keep your, you know, the things that matter to you in a very safe little place inside you. And don't let that stuff, that noise and that hurt and that public finger pointing and all of that sort of stuff Derail be you. part of your life. Because it's not, it's a moment. Exactly. Now, wrapping up the John chapter, sure. we can't go past the fact that you met in really extraordinary circumstances that were all wrapped around the Melbourne Cup. 1985, <laughs> was it? I know. Isn't you were living in England? Extraordinary. Racing's just had so much to do with my life. 
I was living in the UK, married, um, with a daughter who was five at the time. And my father was vice chairman of the VRC. And it was the first ever sponsorship of the great race. It was the million dollar Foster's Melbourne Cup. Thanks to John. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This brash young man who'd walked into the boardroom of the VRC and said, why don't I sponsor your race? And they'd all looked sort of aghast at each other. It was a game changer for racing and a game changer for you. Yeah, and I remember my father's reaction at the time. He rang me and, you know, sort of said, oh, God, you'll never believe this. The boss of Elders and CUB has walked in and said that we'll sponsor the Melbourne Cup for a million dollars. He said, we're all sort of sitting and thinking about it, but not for too long. (laughs) Um, So they did that. And then he, um, you know, Prince Charles and Princess Diana were also coming as guests of the VRC and it was like bigger than Texas. So my father, it was his first year as vice chairman and so he rang me and said, come home. It's going to be wonderful and I'd love you to be there. And it saved you from a time in England where you needed a change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of rescued me again in a funny sort of a way because I'd had a very, very wonderful nine years with David, but I was very young and very homesick and it just sort of felt there was something more and came home and who did I meet on Cup Day? (laughs) Did John ever tell you why he decided to sponsor the Melbourne Cup? What prompted that decision? Because it had never happened before and it was a game changer for sport. Yeah, well, he was in that world. I remember when he asked Frank Sinatra to come and sing at our Christmas party. I mean, you know, <laughs> and nothing. Did he? No, no, of course not. <laughs> I don't know. I'm wondering. No, no, he didn't. But John, he was a forward thinker. You know, why not? And it was all about brand. He was a great marketer. Mm-hmm. He never, ever let anyone hold a can without the label showing. You know, he always made sure that whatever way his organisation was represented, It was the best. I mean, he did the whole Paul Hogan in the UK, you know, throwing a shrimp on the barbie and all that sort of thing. You know, he was brilliant in that regard. And he thought, well, we need to associate with the best. So he just fronted the committee and said, here's a million dollars and I want to be associated with the Melbourne Cup. I first fell in love with AFL at a Carlton-Collingwood game when John was at the helm of Carlton. Are you a Carlton fan? (laughs) (laughs) I've got a really good story about that. Okay. Um, No, no, no. But I started life as a Melbourne supporter. My whole family were Melbourne supporters. When John and I got together, of course I had no choice. No choice. I was just as embedded in the Carlton story as everyone else. And John was so passionate passionate about it. (laughs) I mean, you could not help but be a Carlton supporter. And I still am because you don't lose that. So I now have two teams that don't perform ter- or haven't been performing that well. They'll come back. They always Absolutely. say that. You can't, you can't be a fair weather fan. No. I guess, though, um, you get used to those sort of 16 years. We, we were pretty successful. And uh, then there was... And had the best jumpers. And had the best Still do. colour scheme. I mean, <laughs> navy blue, Absolutely. Hey there, sorry to interrupt your podcast, but once you've finished up here, why don't you head over to Hammer at Home? You'll hear from me, Barry Dubois. I'll be talking to all sorts of interesting people from all different walks of life about their homes, families, all sorts of stuff. Start by giving my chat with Dr. Chris Brown a listen. I reckon it's a lot of laughs. Take it easy. Catch you soon. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Let's get back to your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Your dad was a Spitfire pilot. And was a pom? No, was born in Australia but educated in England, so had spent all his young life there. His father actually was the first MLA for, they called it Turak in those days, it's now Stonington. My great-grandfather was actually mayor of Melbourne and his son, my grandfather Norman, was a very um, involved person in Melbourne, whether it be through his job, because he was the local member, whether it be through his parties, which I believe were legendary, whether it be through the fact that he was a great sportsman himself. He played tennis with Norm Brooks and went to Wimbledon every year. I never knew him, sadly, because he was long gone by the time I was born, but he was a real mover and a shaker, and my father was an only child. So my father was sent to England at a young age to be educated, which was, must have been pretty challenging because he only got back once a year on a flying boat for the long holidays. And my grandfather had quite extensive land interests and that sort of thing, and they used to have to go around all those, so my father understood what were going to be his responsibilities, even from a young age. So he met my mother over there. She was obviously from the UK, and they got married during the Battle of Britain when he was a 21-year-old who had been reading law at Oxford when war broke out and was straight into the Air Force, had very little experience, had met my mother and got married literally as London was being bombed. He was a real hero. You know, he was highly decorated. He was so young. He must have been so afraid, but he never said anything about that. And my parents, like when I think about how challenging that must have been, And theirs was a real love story. You know, my mother refused to go back to Scotland. She wanted to be as close to the airfield where he was, so she found a little farmhouse and rented it. And they were there about eight months. And then my father was sent to Burma and India. Of course, my mother was pregnant. And my father came back three years later to find himself with a son. And actually... I hope I'm not boring you or anything, but there's a beautiful story around what happened at the end of the war because my mother had no way of telling. No one knew when the Japanese war, which was still going on, I mean, World War II was over, but the Japanese part of it was a little more vague than that, particularly for people living in the UK. So my mother met every train because all the troop trains used to come into Waterloo for three weeks hoping that my father would be on board. And she was becoming very despondent and thought, well, maybe something dreadful's happened and she would get the lists of those MIA and all of those ghastly things. And as she was beginning to lose heart, she went to a four o'clock train and, and she got the tap on the shoulder. She turned around, it was my father. My mother died of cancer and my father died of a broken heart 12 weeks later. They had been together for 58 years and they were literally the light of each other's lives. Even now <laughs> I start feeling sort of emotional. But for, for me, I adored him. The awful thing was trying to fill the void and realising that you, you couldn't do it. Because um, she was the void. Yeah, she was it. You know, he just wanted to be with her. 
So how does a blue blood daughter of a decorated soldier in country Victoria end up working for Gough Whitlam? You must have caused a ruction of extraordinary proportions. Yes, it was a challenging time for particularly my father and I because during that period of me being a socialist, he was actually president of the local Liberal Party branch and had stood for politics himself and, of course, was an absolute blue-ribbon Liberal. How did you break that news to him that you'd crossed over to the dark side? Well, it was a slow burn, let me tell you. When I went to Melbourne University, I had, up until that time, led this charmed life of beautiful country freedom, educated parents, but had just accepted all of these views that everybody had around the dining room table and thought the world was a pretty good place, really. I got to university in the 70s and I was reading politics, philosophy and Asian languages and I discovered that the world out there had all these other views. It's not black and white, there's a lot of grey. No, which I loved. I thought, wow, you know, this is extraordinary. But you must have been quite good at what you were doing to land a job in Gough Whitlam's office. How did that happen? So I went after it. As soon as I got to my final year at university, I had a pretty clear view that I was going to change the world in some way. And if you team philosophy with politics, it's all about making the world a better place. So I embraced the sort of socialist view of the world, and I believed Gough was the big reformer, which of course he was. So I very quickly decided that putting my hand up and sitting for these foreign affairs-type jobs was what I needed to do in advance of graduating. So I did that. My parents took my sister and I away on a beautiful trip after I'd graduated. And literally three weeks into the trip, I get word that I've got the job in Canberra, in the external relations section of the Prime Minister's office. I'm going, I've got to go. Everyone was terribly disappointed. I just got the first plane home. What did your father say when you told him? (laughs) Actually, no, my father, despite his political leanings, was delighted. It was all about achievement. It was about a challenge but it was fantastic. I felt that the motivation of getting there, and I was so junior, you know, I was like this, the lowest of the low sort of uni graduate, but I still felt I had an important role to play. And a contribution. Yeah, sure. Speaking of challenges, one of the biggest challenges that's come along for you recently, and I'll just refer back to when I worked on the Cup 10, 15 years ago, the Spring Carnival, the VRC, owned racing really in Australia. You had it sewn up and you were the only racing club that had everyone in Victoria essentially on board in terms of the race fixtures and that everyone worked towards the pinnacle of Spring Carnival. New South Wales racing was a mess and it was essentially the same around the country. But in the last three or four years, New South Wales has started to get its act together. Yeah, and look... That's absolutely fine. There is times of the year where we've all kind of put aside and and over a long period of time, people have developed events, racing events, that have risen the tide for everybody. They don't come any bigger than Cup Week. Cup Week is something that has evolved over 160 years. It does rise the tide for everybody and the best horses in Australia and indeed, of course, it attracts international horses, race during that week. So I have absolutely no problem with racing New South Wales doing their best. What I do have a problem with 
is impacting events like that one week that have actually done a great job for Australian racing. Australian racing is what we're all interested in. We all have our responsibilities, but at the end of the day, we have a finite horse population that needs to be able to go to different crescendo events, whether it be Brisbane, whether it be autumn in Sydney, or whether it be spring in Melbourne. So I have no problem. I mean, let's face it, there are 56 other race meetings around Australia on Cup Day. Randwick is one of them. Without exception, those 56 race meetings are the biggest race meetings for each of those jurisdictions. What that demonstrates is what Cup Week does for others. Now, if you impact a particular day, and this year it's Derby Day, then you are going to split a horse population because you've thrown an awful lot of money at a race that has no type status or anything. But of course, some of those owners, trainers and jockeys are going to have to make a choice that they don't want to make. If you ask Gay Waterhouse, for instance, whether she would rather be in Melbourne or Sydney, she would say to you, I'd rather be able to do both. And we can all do both. So my disappointment around that is about splitting the horse population, the owner population and the jockey population around the big global racing events that are competing on a world stage, not just within Australia. We compete on a world stage and people need to understand that and particularly at Flemington. 800 million people are watching what we do at Flemington worldwide. So the last thing that we need is to have one or two of the better horses not at Flemington. We need to have the best there. And my role is to make sure that happens. Do you pick up the phone to Peter Volantis? I have done, yes. And what are relationships like? I don't know Peter very well. Certainly we will get to know each other. We have all sorts of plans to meet up and that sort of thing. And it's not a personal thing, this, in any shape or form. It's about wanting that point I've just made to be understood. And, you know, autumn always belonged to Sydney and we celebrated that. You just want spring to belong to Melbourne. It's not even about, you know, whether it belongs. I think it makes sense to not impact big weeks in Melbourne. People say, oh, it's good for wagering. As we've discussed right at the start of our conversation, racing is much more than wagering, and it is. And it's about maintaining Australian racing in a sensible way so that the impact to the great events aren't impacted unnecessarily. There is plenty of time in the rest of November or December to do these things. It doesn't have to be on Derby Day in Cup Week. One of the marketing misses, I think, in racing is there's so much jargon. And when I worked on the Cup and I would talk to people about racing, they simply don't understand the concept of a handicap. I wonder, is there room to better educate people about the sport? Because there's just so much jargon that alienates people. You're absolutely right. And actually, it's an opportunity to do it off the great race itself. I mean, the Melbourne Cup is very unusual in that it is a handicap and a Group 1 race. 
And the handicapping of the Melbourne Cup is something everyone should understand because it is so quintessentially Australian to want to have a level playing field for the battler to knock off the billionaire, (laughs) for argument's sake, so that the best horses with the best form who you would ordinarily think would just win in a trot are given more weight versus the ones who haven't performed perhaps as well, who are given less weight and therefore an advantage to level the stakes and allow those horses to jump from the barriers in a sort of level playing field sense so that no one, you know, the handicapper tries to even the stakes with weight rather than distance. So the best horses with the best form in the field will carry more weight than the ones down the bottom of the order who perhaps aren't such champions or whatever, but are part of the field and you want to give them just as much opportunity over two miles. Amanda, I think you should be on our coverage because you explained it far better than I've probably ever heard because racing people preach to the converted. Yeah, they do. And I think if you continue to preach to the converted, you're not going to spread the word and inculcate a new generation into the nuances of racing and the joy of racing and the spectacle and the sport of it yeah. if you don't understand it. No, it's a very, very good point. I mean, there is So a- you're free, Cupta? Sure. I mean, I'm so excited about um, the whole Channel 10 new partnership for Cup Week. It's going to be fantastic. Can I indulge you for a minute? And I'd like to pay tribute to the former head of sport here, a man called Mike Ordsent, who I can't tell you what year it was, decided that racing could be covered as a television event before anyone. Because 10 had it for 24 years. And when I first started at 10, Mike Ordsent was the head of sport. And I said, how did you work out that you could cover this as a television event? And he said, I went to the track and I took down the timings between every race and how long it took to get out to the barriers for the jumps to happen, for the race to happen, then to check correct weight, interview the jockey and or the trainer. And he built a schedule and he built a timetable that has been replicated The world over. Yeah. He was a very visionary man. There are not often people who come along who see an opportunity that other people have been staring at for years and haven't done so. That vision to understand that as a television spectacle, not just the racing, but the stuff that sat around it as well, people at home would enjoy He saw those windows between races as an opportunity to celebrate the fashion. He elevated Oaks Day to a day of elegance where women were showcased at their best. And I think when we started with the cup coverage, Oaks Day had an attendance of 40,000. And by the seven years that I finished, it was at 120,000 people. And the tone of the coverage changed that day. So it wasn't just about the fashion, and yes, there was the celebrity, but the racing was covered in the minutiae of detail that needs to be covered. You know, you had Johnny Letts on horseback, and gosh, some of the great jockeys covering the main ring. You had people with racing authority, but he peppered that with the grandeur and the spectacle of the day. And I, I always get a little bit sad come Cup Day that Mike Ordsent, whose vision for racing coverage it's been acknowledged inside, you know, the halls of Channel 10. But globally, it was the template that was replicated worldwide. 
what you have just said is so important. So to you, who was part of it, and Mike, we owe the biggest debt of gratitude. The world of racing actually does worldwide because you showed racing differently. You showed... You remember, don't you? I do. I do. And you showed racing in a way that no one thought racing could be shown. And that was a brave thing to do. I think that the vision and that big picture stuff, we all owe a great deal of gratitude to because look at where it is now and look at the values that in a financial and in a monetary sense are attached to racing vision now. Look at social media. Look at Twitter who take the Melbourne Cup live, you know, because of its standing in a visual sense. And Channel 10 and you, Sandra Sully and Mike, Johnny Letts should have a great big feeling of contentment about what you did and where it is now. Honestly, I had nothing but a bit part. But Mike Ordsend, I think, should be acknowledged. Peter Donegan's role, Johnny Letts, those guys had a genuine passion and love for the sport of racing and took it to that next level. It is a really special thing. It's a really special thing. And you saying that has, you know, I've now realised that the great big gap in a lot of the things that I've been doing recently, particularly since we've signed with Network 10, has been not acknowledging that. We all understand that it's coming home and all of that sort of thing, and we love that. But actually realising that you could pull that off way back when, when no one else was doing it, is something that we should all recognise. And from here on in, I will be doing that. Amanda Elliott, we celebrate you. We celebrate an amazing Cup Week. Enjoy, enjoy. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandra. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.